0: In the United States, almost 8 out of 10 members of the Gen Z generation and 7 out of 10 of millennials reported being lonely in 2019. As if it could get any worse, many experts say even more people are lonely since the COVID 19 pandemic hit. Today, UCLA social well being expert Dr. Ted Robles will discuss with me how stress, social support, and close intimate relationships can impact our health and well being. Please join me in the first of a two-part episode as we dive into Ted's research. In this first part, we will explore how each of us can build stronger and more resilient social networks and prevent loneliness. Ted, thanks so much for coming Mm -hmm. today. And we're super excited to talk to you about your work, especially since it's been real Actually, I've had a really steep learning curve hmm. related to your work, which um, I would like to say what your laboratory is called, which I think is kind of cool, Relationship mm-hmm. and Health right, Laboratory. Right. And your team focuses on ranging a range of topics like relationships between social support and digital spaces and health to how family functioning can mm-hmm. actually worsen the effects of outdoor air pollution, mm-hmm. which it blows my mind even thinking about what that (laughs) means. I think we're going to delve on all those subjects. But before we get started on the details, I think it's really important for everyone because it was a real learning moment for me Mm -hmm. is what is the definition of social well-being and also social connection. Oh,
1: sure. Well, there is depending on the discipline, there's a lot of different definitions. The way I like to think of social well-being is, do you have uh, a good number of relationships with other people that are high quality? So are these people that you can rely on for help if you need it? Are they people that can support you uh, when you're feeling down? And are they people who you can turn to for advice? And if you feel like that you have that present, if you know that that resource is available to you, then I think you're someone who has a pretty good degree of social well-being. It doesn't have to mean that you have 500 friends, but what it really means is that you have people that you know you can turn to and that you can rely on. So it's not about
0: quantity, it's about
1: quality. It's a little bit about quantity because it's got to be more than zero, right? Uh (laughs) And there's something to be said for not having, you know, one or two people that you rely on for all things. Uh Um, And there's also something to be said for having a diversity of people who fill a a lot of roles in your life and that you fill a lot of different roles for a lot of people. But it doesn't have to mean that you're the most popular person who has, you know, every weeknight booked or anything like that either.
0: So I just heard you say it's not just about what you can get from someone else, Mm -hmm. but what you can give to Mm -hmm. someone else. Mm -hmm. So that is a a two-way street for social
1: well-being. Absolutely. When we think about social support and what it does for health, there's some really interesting work suggesting that reporting that you can give help to other people may actually be a little bit more beneficial than what you report getting yourself. Mm. Some of that obviously has to do with if I'm in the position to help, I'm obviously probably a little bit more functional, but at the same time, there may be benefits to providing care, not just, you know, in a sort of parental sense, but giving back uh, and that there may be benefits to doing that as well.
0: And so, yes, speaking of like familial relationships, would you define social well-being to include family members?
1: Absolutely. Yes, of course. Because uh, those are relationships where you rely on people for support. You're also giving support to people, in that, especially as the kids get older to some degree. But even you know the young infants give us something as well in terms of um, feeling a sense of love and connection. Uh, and so certainly family relationships are a very important part of this overall construct of social well-being.
0: So you're talking about children, I thinking about what I started to do later in my practice as a pediatrician was to be sure to ask children if they had a best friend, mm-hmm. and what is that? Does that sort of a signify that that? child has someone they can rely on if you re- define them as best friend or mm-hmm. what what is what does so, that mean in
1: your yeah discipline? i think partly one that you have a source of companionship someone to spend time with someone that maybe over time you develop an understanding with you know of each other or that someone under- understands you uh, you know certainly even you know in kind of early childhood or i'll say sort of elementary school age You know, it's important to have someone who kind of sees the world in slightly the same way, um, just so you feel like you're not as, um, you know, alone or different, so to speak. Uh, And then that becomes ever more important, you know, as we grow older. And so having friends... Um, certainly during, well, throughout all of the life course. um, But the capacity to do that and the capacity to be a good friend are really important. You know, They're evolutionarily important skills that we've had to develop over time.
0: And that sort of, again, thinking about children and feeling accepted, that's something else that I've heard you and others Mm -hmm. in your discipline talk about is a sense of feeling included or Mm -hmm. inclusion. Mm -hmm. So can you explain? address that a little Mm
1: bit? So um, oftentimes in our research, we like to think of, I I sort of traffic in a lot of romantic relationship kind of research, but I think the construct still applies across relationships, which is this idea of people being responsive to you. And I think that that can also be subsumed under kind of the umbrella of inclusion. So responsiveness in our work is, do you feel like there are that the people that you're with understand you? Do you feel like they value you, that they, they, they value your importance as a person, as part of the group? And do you think that they care about you? And, If you experience your social world as such, so if you experience your friends and your family as people who understand you, that they value you, and that they care for you, then we would say that you have sort of a high degree of, or you would describe your social, the people around you as being very responsive. And so if we just broaden that a little bit more and think about an organization or a workplace or an institution or a school, do I feel like the people here maybe not everybody, but a good number of them understand my experience. Do they value my experience? Do they think that I'm a person who it's good that I am here in the place that I'm at? And do I feel cared for by the people who I work with or by the people who instruct me or through the staff that I work with? I think those things are also kind of a very important part of this overall inclusion experience. Because if you are at a place where you don't feel understood by others, Where you don't feel like people care about you, where you don't think that people think you have value, then that's a recipe for feeling separate and not feeling like, you know, and not feeling included, certainly. So there's very, there's sort of interesting similarities. There's this, I come out of this close relationships work in psychology, but learning more about the sort of social belongingness work that you see in other areas of social psychology in particular, there's an interesting merging there. And I think it all comes back to all of us as human beings want to feel like we're part of something, Mm -hmm. whether that be the person I'm with right now and also, you know, the larger group as well.
0: I mean, you're talking about feelings, which really leads me to consider what you've been doing, which is measuring people's reaction, physical reaction. Mm -hmm. And feelings certainly are an emotional Mm -hmm. reaction, but also they stimulate a physical reaction. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to me what you've been doing with that? Because I find that fascinating. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I like to think of how we, and I'm not alone in this, Um, I'm very influenced by a lot of our colleagues here at UCLA, in terms of ideas around how our biology was sort of evolved to interact with the social world. So, I like to think of us as we walk around in our experiences, we're constantly evaluating the environment for making sure that we feel safe. To make sure that life is as predictable as we can make it, and that includes the people around us. We like to have predictability in our social lives. You know, I like to expect that someone who I can rely on is today is someone who I can rely on tomorrow, or you know, a week from now, regardless of how I'm doing or how they're doing, um, with some boundaries, of course. And then. Having that certainty, having that safety, uh, is something that we monitor, just like we monitor our energy state, or whether or not we have an infection, or whether or not um, our immune system is actively fighting something like an infection or you know some sort of environmental pollutant. And so, one of the functions of our brain is to really monitor the, the totality of our world, including our social world, and then direct our body to respond accordingly. And so if we feel, so short of any kind of physical exposure, so we'll just sort of take, you know, infection and pollution or other things out of the equation and just think about not feeling safe. If I don't feel safe, if I feel very uncertain about my environment, that's going to lead to these uh, physiological changes to help me Try to get back to a state where I feel more certain or where I feel more safe. You know, I might, you can think about the physiological changes that occur when you are nervous or when you're uncertain. Some of that has a communicative value. So I'm trying to express to somebody, "Uh, I'm really unsure about what's going on here. I need some reassurance, for example. And maybe through that biological activity that's happening in my brain and also in the periphery outside my my brain that then leads me to kind of get back to a state where I feel more safe and more certain and that can also activate other aspects of our physiology that for them it's really important to know that I don't feel safe or certain. So I study the immune system, for example, and we know that that many aspects of our stress biology prepare our immune system to deal with impending threats. Uh, So some of my early work was on stress and wound healing. My graduate advisor studied stress and wound healing.
0: Wound healing. Wound healing, yeah. Like cuts.
1: Yep, like cuts, exactly. And there's really interesting animal literature showing that animals in sort of uncertain social environments, their immune system is primed to respond to infections much more quickly. And we think that's because if they're in an uncertain social environment, they just anticipate that they're going to get hurt. And so their innate immune system needs to be more active and more prepared to respond when there's an opening in the epidermis and bacteria starts to flood in, flood in through your skin. And And then there's other work suggesting that, again, in uncertain social environments, that your immune system may be programmed to prepare to deal with infections and maybe preference dealing with certain types of infections, like bacterial infections, but down-regulating other aspects of immunity, like antiviral immunity. Mm. And so just like, you know, our immune system responds to changes in our physical environment, so now we'll bring back in things like infections and things like um, environmental pollutants your immune system is also aware of what's happening in our quote-unquote social world as well, because it's all part of the same world, right? Mm. And so that's been really fascinating to kind of learn, contribute to, and try to unpack over the course of what I've been doing over the last you know 12 years or so here.
0: And do you think that's brought some merit to your field in the world of sort of the medical world, so to speak? Because often it's mm-hmm. really not even focused on yeah. about your social well-being. Right.
1: Like yeah, I definitely think that's part of it for sure. So some of my work has been, uh, we've been trying to demonstrate some of these ideas at the level of gene expression. And so when you can say that when I'm experiencing, so this is not my work, but this is uh, collaborator's work, Steve Cole. When you can say that across several studies, People who report feeling socially isolated, that they have upregulations of genes that are responsible for the in, or inflammatory processes for promoting inflammation, which is and, associated with Alzheimer's exactly. and cardiovascular Parkinson's disease, and cardiovascular, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. Cardiometabolic illness, and when I can say that you know feeling, reporting that or being in a a family environment where there are relatively higher levels of conflict, relatively lower levels Mm -hmm. of support, whether you're a child or a parent, that both those things can activate some of the same molecular machinery as well. That that does help, certainly, in um, gaining credibility with medicine. But I'll also add that one of the things that's been really important for my work Uh, and others too, is demonstrating that this has clinically relevant impacts that you could observe. So that was why there was an initial interest in wound healing, not just on my part, but my graduate work and my graduate mentor. That's why I was interested in assessing patient-reported outcomes like uh, symptoms of the common cold or the flu, because those are the things you see as a a physician and that your patients come and, and talk about and are concerned about. And I wanted to make sure that the link between the kinds of social things that I was interested in linked back to the very complaints that patients would walk in the door with.
0: Well, you know, I mean, there has been new research following what there's that aging longitudinal study that talks about the risks of being healthy or being dead in the next five years, Mm -hmm. right? And social Mm -hmm. isolation is one of the risks. Yep.
1: Right. Right.
0: And it overcomes any other sort of medical diagnosis in mm-hmm. terms of its risk is mm-hmm. among the highest
1: it might be sort of multi it might contribute to many of those at least the progression of many of those conditions uh, as well exactly. whether it be through behavior so being sedentary not eating well and also some of this physiology too uh-huh. yeah
0: yeah well it's Really, a remarkable emerging science. It sounds like in terms of being able to link physiological mm-hmm. changes with the emotional changes mm-hmm. that are around being socially isolated mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of things I want to unpack here. One, I, I mentioned emotional, and I, I'll never forget being educated about the fact that you know emotional well-being and social well-being are distinct, but obviously interrelated. Can you expand on that a mm-hmm. little bit?
1: Well, I always think of, so certainly social relationships, there is a significant emotional component. I mean, and they're one of the major sources of positive emotions, certainly. And so when you think about things like feeling gratitude and feeling compassion and feeling joy, uh, one of the main contributors to having uh, sort of high levels of emotional well being is certainly uh, the social relationships that we have. And if you, and people who study emotional well being, they often find that the, one of the major contributors to emotional well being is. The social having high quality social relationships, but of course emotions are generated by lots of things, and certainly not just the people that we're with, um, but also the things that we experience as individuals, uh, but also within sort of larger groups beyond just our, um, you know, the the people that I interact with on a sort of one-to-one basis. So, I mean, as kind of a simple example, um, you know, the experiences that you have when you're cheering for people, you know, for a team in an event, you know, that's a really large communal experience. It's not necessarily predicated on my relationship with the person sitting next to me on my left or right, but it is something that is bigger and doesn't necessarily involve these sort of one-to-one relationships. And also, having really unhappy relationships is one of the major contributors to poor emotional well-being as well. So you think, if you think about what puts you at risk for depression, interpersonal rejection is a major contributor to that as well. But again, one of the really interesting things that uh, we're finding in psychoneuroimmunology is... That not all depression is the same, and that's actually all. Of, you know, that's not just a psychoneuroimmunology thing. That's a psychiatry, psychology kind of finding. There's many different ways to experience depression, of which some of some of which may involve how our immune system responds to our environment. Mm. Uh, and so there may be, for some people, uh, some it's a, when you are exposed to even say something like the common cold or the flu, uh, that that may uh, by generating these inflammatory processes affect how we process. Uh, information that then impacts how we feel. And so some of that may not necessarily be a function of the people that we're with. I kind of am biased. I think that a lot of it has to do with how we process our social world. But at the same time, you know, things like experiencing anhedonia, where just things don't feel rewarding anymore, that doesn't necessarily just extend to people, it could extend to I don't enjoy the movies that I used to enjoy. I don't enjoy the food I used to enjoy. And so that can be a way that emotional well-being is affected, but not necessarily through these sort of social processes.
0: Uh So, of course, it's quite complicated. Right, right. they're highly intertwined. (laughs) Yes, exactly, at the same time. You know, something that strikes me that I experience when I'm around someone that I really feel accepted by or and that is giving to me, and the expression it warms my heart. Mm-hmm. Explain to me what
1: that, mm-hmm. how, I mean, because it definitely feels, like, what's happening in right, that situation? Right. You know, there's a really interesting literature on... Uh, I'm trying to remember, I just saw a kind of, uh, something flew across my Twitter recently about a conference where they're going to be talking about the intersection between thermoregulation, so how we can, our control of body temperature and how we experience temperature and our social experience. So there are these really interesting studies where if you are holding a warm cup, that might actually affect how you perceive the person, a person that you're with, you might perceive them as being more socially warmer, for example. So this all goes back to some ideas around uh, how some of our basic needs are processed by our brain. So things like hunger, things like warmth and temperature, things like pain. That the circuitry that we then evolved over time in our kind of really thick cortices co-opted some of that same machinery. And so things like social pain of being rejected, so that feelings of being cold because you are left out, or warm because you had a really intense and meaningful experience with somebody, or hunger because you really miss somebody, that some of the neural mechanisms might have used some of the same machinery that we use To evaluate and process some of those basic, what we might call biological needs, Hmm. as well. It's really interesting. It really is nice to know that there's some sort of
0: physiologic connection with that right
1: right, uh, expression. Otherwise, we'd have much bigger heads. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) We'd have to have much more parts of our brain devoted to some of separate social things. Then we wouldn't be able to walk on our legs. Right. Right.
0: Yeah, you've alluded a little bit to your specific focus of research for social well-being, which is romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. Love to hear more about what that means. Mm-hmm.
1: So I was very interested in romantic relationships right from when I started graduate school. I've been always, I was fascinated by how, again, both the positives of our relationships, so the warmth, the affection that we experience, the support that we experience, I've always been fascinated with how that translated to these physiological responses and how that would then potentially have effects on health. And likewise... I was always interested in how the friction, the conflict, the stonewalling, the dismissing of your loved one, especially in these close, intimate relationships, how that might also be damaging over, uh, you know, both the short and the long term. And I initially was interested in that in the context of studying couples as they interact with each other in a laboratory environment. This was typically in a hospital environment, and they so we would couples would be brought into. A hospital research wing. They'd volunteer for this. They'd volunteer for this, (laughs) yeah. They would be observed, so they'd be videotaped uh, in my master's thesis. So this is work from my advisor who really pioneered this entire field, really. So in addition to talking to your partner about a problem in your relationship, like, I wish you would take out the garbage and do the dishes more— Then, because I have to do everything, you're having this conversation while you have a catheter in your arm, Mm. and you're having blood drawn every 15 minutes or so. And what what she found in her work, and I've sort of found sort of similar results in sort of reanalysis of these findings, is that uh, the more negative your behaviors are with each other, You show higher levels of epinephrine and circulating norepinephrine Mm -hmm. and higher levels of, depending on how, so depending on how positive this discussion is going. Because sometimes there are actually sort of moments of levity, even when you're talking about a problem in the relationship the more moments of levity you can have and the more supportive you can be, you can kind of buffer those impacts on the production of these hormones that we typically think of as stress hormones. And so then I began getting interested in the health impacts of this. And so when I got to UCLA, I was really interested in studying how how we think about relationships might impact how we heal wounds, for example. Mm -hmm. And interestingly... If you are the type of person who expects or who is really preoccupied with whether or not this relationship is going well, you're worried your partner might leave or at least signal things that suggest that they are on the path towards maybe exiting the relationship. So this is what we would call high levels of attachment anxiety. You're always preoccupied with, you know, you know, how's this relationship going? That that actually may have some sort of preparatory effect where we had individuals who were more anxious about their relationships. They actually were healing wounds faster, mm. which was interesting. Uh, these are young people, relatively short-term relationships. There's other work in longer-term married couples showing that if they are more negative in these discussions, and these are couples who've been married for you know at least a decade or more, that their wounds heal more slowly uh, the more negative they are towards each other during these kinds of discussions.
0: So, you know, getting back then to this concept of inclusion or not being included, that mm-hmm. really translates to certain groups in our society that mm-hmm. can feel this mm-hmm. throughout their lifetime, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. I mean, certain... Um, Groups like African Americans, Mm -hmm. I know African American women have Mm -hmm. had this kind of Mm -hmm. data that's related to their birth, you know, Mm -hmm. pregnancy and birth. Can you expand on that?
1: Well, certainly anybody who is experiencing marginalization of any form, right? And that can be because of ethnicity, as you alluded to. uh, That can also be because of being a sexual minority as well, and either experiencing both explicit forms of discrimination and prejudice. Uh, but also implicit forms that kind of live in the background. And um, implicit. But are, Explain implicit. I guess uh, so. I'm thinking about uh, on one hand the ways that people think about other people in a but aren't consciously aware of, and then how they act accordingly. But in addition to that, I was also going to say the sort of structural pieces that form the kind of invisible but highly impactful. Uh, framework in which we live. So, if I live in an if I live in a state where there are laws that discriminate against me, they may not be discriminating against me at this particular moment in time, but the accumulation of experiences that occur because of those laws, the norms that people have about how I get treated, that those can be highly impactful, and again, make someone feel like they're not part of society, not part of this world. And we know that. Social rejection, kind of generally speaking, is definitely a risk factor that kind of amplifies uh, amplifies our stress biology. We're more vigilant for threats in the world, and our immune system, among other systems, responds accordingly by being prepared. And unfortunately, by having an over vigilant, prepared immune system. That has costs over mm-hmm. the long term for the very conditions you were describing before, mm-hmm. cardiometabolic disorders, etc., pregnancy, right? Pregnancy outcomes, mm-hmm. absolutely.
0: Well, so I mean, this is definitely an emerging field in the um, degenerative diseases mm-hmm. as well, in particular, aging mm-hmm. the aging brain. Mm-hmm. So, what you're describing is that social well being and promoting social well being and promoting inc- inclusion and reducing prejudice is mm-hmm. can, is a really critical mm-hmm. intervention for us to be able to enhance people's well-being and physical well-being. Right. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Part of the argument initially for why we wanted to focus not just on emotional well-being, but social well-being as a distinct entity at UCLA here in the Semel Healthy Campus Initiative was this just incredible statistic that or data point that came out of it, about cigarettes. Mm-hmm, so can mm-hmm, you explain right. to me yeah. this? This is yeah, so scary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: so one of the things we're always interested in, the sort of psychosocial factors in health folks are interested in, is we want to make sure, or we want to know, okay, if we benchmarked the risk related to being lonely or to having very few friends against other known risk factors, like, you know, how much of a problem is this if if people are reporting high levels of loneliness? Because on one hand, you could imagine that uh, the effect size is not big. I mean, there's a lot of things in this world that in psychology where the effect sizes are relatively small. And, and what does that mean? So I guess sizes? the way I like to think of it is, If let's just pretend we're talking about the likelihood that you're going to get heart disease in 10 years. And if we imagine that there's a cup and that cup contains all the things that can put you at risk. Uh, And if different parts of that cup were different colored liquids or um, different density liquids. So let's say I fill half that cup with exercise. So half of the reason that I'm at greater risk for developing heart disease is because of my exercise or, or lack thereof. You know, where does social isolation stack up? Is it about the same amount of, does it explain the same amount of variation in why somebody gets heart disease? Or is it less? And if it's like a minuscule amount in that cup, then maybe it's not that important for us to focus on. And so that's why we wanted to kind of benchmark and all of us who've done these kind of meta-analyses, where we look at all the studies that have been done, and then we look at the uh, size of you know what is the re- what is the size of the relationship between marital quality that is how you evaluate your relationship and risk for death? Does that look about the same as something like exercise or something like smoking? And certainly the for social isolation, you know, I didn't do these analyses, but you know, uh, my colleague Julian Holt Lundstad did. And then, when you look at how something like social isolation stacks up to not smoking, you know, the effect size is very similar. And in some cases, depending on your metric, it might be bigger. And so, what that told us is that, you know, if you could mitigate social isolation you might get some bang for your buck, you know, 10 years, 20 years down the road, and that it would be something that would be important to focus on. And so that was much of the motivation for trying to find... You know, how does this stack up next to something that we already devote a lot of money and time towards?
0: And know really, no, really can well. cause yeah, serious illness and death. Absolutely. Social well-being is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day?
1: I think, yeah. So I think there they were looking at studies where, again, it was probably a meta-analysis of, you know, to what degree of smoking exposure over a certain amount of time was related to risk of early mortality, and so, yeah, that ended up being 15 uh, cigarettes uh, the, the sort of the equivalent effect size-wise.
0: So we just uh, removed and... Actually, have a tobacco ban mm-hmm. At, mm-hmm. Right, on campus. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but meanwhile, we have to also be looking at right, how right. we can
1: promote social well-being yeah. on yeah. campus because,
0: yeah. unbeknownst to us, people are getting a,
1: a dose of right. of the uh, <laughs> about a little less than impact. a pack or a couple of, a pack and a half, right? Or, or how much how much I, don't how many I don't know how many cigarettes are in a yeah. pack. <laughs> but it is interesting that that is that statistic and other quarters that I have revolved in. I remember presenting some of my findings on marital quality and health at the Gerontological Society of America meeting and a symposium. And that was really the thing was, wow, it was just amazing that this social factor was equivalent to like a smoking, for example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: And so, I mean, what has evolved clearly since you started as a grad student is now World Health Organization lists... Mm -hmm. Social support networks as a determinant of yeah, health. Right. So, can you explain to me what that means for yeah, us now yeah. that the World Health Organization yeah. is talking about this? Yeah,
1: I think what it means is that we typically think of, you know, let's take something like physical activity, where we now have a good set of strategies that one must. That a society, and that public health, and that medicine, that has to has to go through in order to try to increase physical activity. There's a and and it's not just things that one person has to do. You know, it's not just that I, as an individual, have to know that I need to get 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise in order to prevent my risk of per week chronic per week. Yes, <laughs> to to prevent my risk of you know disease later on down the road. It's not enough that I have to know it. I have to know what to do. I have to live in a... Uh, in a world that can make that easier for me to do, uh, and so you think about the bike lanes that are here now on campus, or just you know of lots of efforts to try to increase access to being able to bike, for instance, um, from one part of town to, to the next. That's not something that that I as an individual can do, but I, I have to rely on the stakeholders and people in the community who can control policies, those things: Policy, taxes, taxes yeah. etc. Yeah. And I think. Being able to do that involved being recognized by public health and policymakers as, you know, that physical activity is important and that there are these ways to change it that can't just involve one person deciding. They have to involve these structural changes. And so that's kind of what I'm hoping to see for social networks Mm. as a social determinant is so much of how, you know, when you talk to somebody about, Loneliness is a problem, and people are lonely. And and uh, how many and, people you know, are lonely yeah, you in know, our country? Depending on the estimate, you know, it's probably somewhere around like a third oh uh, or gosh. so, maybe even 40%, depending oh. on the survey. There was a recent one done 40%. by—
0: 40%? You know, how do you by,
1: define lonely? So uh, the there are measures. One was developed here at UCLA called the UCLA Loneliness Scale. And so they're basically measures that ask— I mean, you can even just ask the question, I feel lonely, and how much of the time does someone mm. report that? It can be that simple. And so in, in there was a recent one, I can't remember the name of the health insurance company or provider that did this very large survey of tens of thousands of individuals. And so, again, it was around a third to 40%. Cigna, I think. Yeah, Cigna. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. And so you could think of not – so when we think of, you know, someone's lonely, how can we combat that? Well, they should get out more. They should go, you know, get on Facebook. They should um, make an effort to talk to people. Or people should make an effort to talk to them. And those things are totally true. But the idea of recognizing social networks as a social determinant at the level of public health opens up the door for thinking about this problem the way someone who, who does work in public health would. Which is, are there... Structural features of the environment, for instance, that might impact this. For instance, our work culture, our work physical environments. Are we making it easy for people to congregate um, when you think about the design of a workplace or a school? Are there things that we're doing that make it harder, that make it e- too easy for people to feel isolated. So you think about something like family leave policies, you know, around the time that you have a child. You know, that is a time where it's really nice to have, to, to be able to have the time and space for people to provide help, for you to seek the help. And those are things that our current culture and policies don't necessarily support mm-hmm when you think about you know providing care to say uh, an adult uh, in your life who needs help same kind of thing we don't necessarily support that sort of social giving mm-hmm. and then we haven't talked about technology yet but that certainly mm-hmm. is another issue of course which is how can we best use technology to benefit our face-to-face relationships mm-hmm. where and, and be less of a barrier to our interpersonal relationships those are things that yes i individually could make the choice to you know be on facebook less but are there other ways that corporations and companies can design you know, our social environment? Because they clearly are designing our social environments for us. Well, you're really just
0: touching on the point that it's going to be a transdisciplinary exactly. solution to promoting or preventing loneliness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then your point about family leave, I learned much later after my <laughs> children were two, <laughs> but I learned that people tend to be the most lonely when they have a two-year-old mm-hmm. right and right. can yeah. you explain to me what's happening then what and that's so important I wish yeah. I had
1: known because I felt quite lonely yeah and and sad right I think part of it and I didn't get in I didn't touch on this a second ago, but this sort of culture of self-reliance is part of the, is is, is is one major contributing factor, I think. And when you're someone who's, who I like to think of myself as competent and, and educated. And so I like to think that I can take these things on myself. And in some ways, perhaps we're socialized to think that way. In um, the United States. In the United States. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Then you could imagine someone being more likely to want to take on Taking care of my two-year-old at home, for instance, or not wanting to ask someone to watch my two-year-old while I do some social thing, as uh, I, you know, that the social thing is not as important as me making sure my my child is sort of safe, you know, at home in the evening or something like that. And you know, on one hand, those are trade offs that we're willing to make. But on the other hand, and that's good in some ways. But on the other hand, if you think about how we evolved in the environments in which we evolved we had these rich social networks right nearby us Mm -hmm. where we could pass on childcare temporarily while I had to go over to this other part of my village. Mm -hmm. And I think because of the size of the worlds in which we live in and the the number of people that we're around, there's this simultaneous push for us to kind of like shelter ourselves away from this busy world and all the people in it, and we sort of lose the wanting to be able to connect, and we've made it harder for ourselves. So you know, it's not like it's not like we always rely on our immediate neighbors for, can you look after my child for a second, um, because I would like to go, you know, take some time for myself. That's harder now, I think, relative mm-hmm. to a long time ago.
0: I mean, so you're really touching on some ideas about how you could as an individual or family promote social well-being by maintaining or creating connectivity and mm-hmm. also be willing to ask for help how how about population based cuz you just you talked about mm-hmm. that a little bit with world health organization mm-hmm. but and that's something that we're yeah. really challenged with yeah. right that question right
1: and certainly to create cultures where self-reliance isn't the norm then you have to think about how to restructure the world as such. And that is a harder one to, for me in part because, you know, I was, you know, I'm trained as a psychologist. And so I think sort of, I think about very small kind of groups of people. And I often think mainly about the individual and their sort of internal experience. But you, you know, are there structural ways that we can support people connecting with one another more and relying on each other more you know on one hand there's always going to be some barrier in the sense of getting over yes you do need to have someone help you with your child from time to time or with your work from time to time but can we create structures in which again that feels like an easy choice as mm-hmm. opposed to a hard choice i don't have any good answers for that but i think the same principle applies is you know those kinds of things that we would like to encourage how can we how can we build worlds where those are straightforward decisions and actions to take.
0: Well, you know, I mean, if if you sort of go into the transdisciplinary world, I've been talking a lot to people about resilience, not just about their emotional resilience, but climate change Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. how much we're going to have to deal with the resilience of, you know, at at least at this point, very big swings of nature. And and so being able to ask for help, but also being socially connected is a form of resilience.
1: Right. Correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you would it would be a tragedy if the first time that you really got to know your neighbors, it would be good to get to know them, of course. But like, if, if the first meaningful experience you had with your neighbors was because, God forbid, some disaster happened to either mm-hmm. you or somebody in the neighborhood or something like that, mm-hmm. and there's definitely something to again going back to some of these evolutionary ideas. You know, we, we evolved in these sort of small social groups that we could then band together to deal with, you know, a very uncertain world. And what we've done is we've made the world a little bit harder for us to connect with each other in these sort of close groups. And we've made the world a little bit more complicated <laughs> and more uh, prone to these kind of uh, disasters that we would have to deal with. And certainly, just as one would seismically retrofit your office <laughs> or seismically retrofit your house... Yeah, we have to think about ways that we would seismically retrofit our kind of communities and social lives Uh for when the thing happens.
0: So what would you, like, for the listeners, what would you recommend as simple steps that they could take?
1: Right, And, and this is where, on one hand... When you study health behavior and when you do research in health behavior, on one hand, you're comforted because it's pretty straightforward, right? You know, exercise, eat right, you know, those things seem simple, but of course, we live in a much more complicated world that makes it hard to do those things same thing reach out get to know the people right next to you those kinds of things again it often and, and again I, I hate to sound like someone who's just suggesting that the individual do this right. but it does start with that in some mm-hmm. ways in terms of getting to know the people that you're around and you know coming back to this idea of understanding valuing and caring for people communicating that certainly um, to the people that you know well and then trying to develop That with, I mean, you don't have to be best friends with everybody, right? right? But it is certainly possible to communicate those same kinds of messages to people that are still in a slightly outer circle, but still somewhat physically close, certainly. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. So, if you were to have to identify some of the pressing issues in your field today, Mm -hmm. what would you identify and what keeps you up at night?
1: Yeah. So, in my work on like family and intimate relationships and health. I do a lot of observation. I mean, I do entirely observational research. So, you know, I'm very interested in looking at associations between support in the family and and these biological mechanisms and health outcomes. I'm not an intervention person, but we do have interventions that do improve the lives and well-being of families and that do improve the lives and well-beings of couples, for example. What we know much less of is the health impact of those things. And so I think the most pressing issue for us is to really demonstrate that these social factors impact physical health, really the best ways to do that are, you know, randomized controlled trials where you're testing the health impacts of family and marital interventions or intimate relationship interventions. And there are people making steps towards that. There's been some really interesting work on families, particularly African-American families in Georgia um, by some groups there, but there's not, there needs to be more of that. And, that's the big challenge, I think, is melding the expertise in studying health from the people who who know how to do that with the expertise and uh, of the people who study interventions. And then one last piece of that is really studying that in people who really need both, mm-hmm. uh, which would be people who live in in populations where they are disadvantaged in terms of their health, uh, and in terms of the economic and social factors that put strains on families and couples, uh, that would be what I would ideally like to see in this in this research.
0: Well, in a way, you are doing a natural <laughs> experiment uh, here at UCLA with a diabetes prevention mm-hmm. program. <laughs> And so we'll stay tuned to that. Right, right, right,
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah. It'll be really interesting to see what happens with that. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Thank you for joining us today. And please tune in next week for the second part of this conversation. Ted and I will pick up where we left off and explore how social well-being affects the biological processes behind stress, how social media can hijack our reward systems, and much more. We hope you can join us next week. Thank you for tuning in to Live Well Today. Today's podcast was brought to you by UCLA's Semel Healthy Campus Initiative Center. To learn more about Ted's research, please visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu livewellpodcast. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, make sure to follow our Twitter and Instagram at livewell underscore UCLA.